Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1952 film Singing in the Rain. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, usually we start by me asking you about your history with the film, and I'm going to ask you that, but I'm going to start with my history with this film. So as I said last week, I have been in rooms where this movie was playing, but I don't think that counts as having seen it. And I think I kind of dismissed it as I'm somebody who's sort of hit and miss with musicals. So, uh, and I think that maybe the parts I saw, I was just like, that's eh, not for me. Um, so I will say this week is probably the first time, not probably definitely the first time that I really sat and watched it. And I have to tell you, it's a very different feeling, but I have the same experience recording this podcast that I did when we recorded about persona where it's like, <laughs> this movie just took over my week. Like I, I loved this movie. Um, when, when it, this is one of my wife's favorite movies. And, and when it finished, I said, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think I have a new movie. That's now like just in that list of this is among my favorite movies like like this now that's a big list but it, but it i didn't expect it to make it into that list um so so we're I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this uh to talk about this with you so maybe to start with what is your history with the film singing in the rain i think the first time i saw it sam was probably as an undergraduate you know like a lot of colleges we had a little film society um i don't remember I, I've, I've also never been a really big musical person, so I don't think it made a huge impression on me at the time. It may partly be the audience I was with, um, a bunch of rowdy college kids at the time. Um, but my wife has always had a big appreciation for musicals. Uh, this is actually not one of her favorites, ironically enough, but that's made me a little bit more open to it, I guess. And then I think when I actually started studying film and realized the significance of it, and what really led me to look more deeply in the film was when I was teaching my film course, and film theory and history, I use it as an example of a genre film uh, to talk a little bit about how genres work and how this fits in the genre and why it's an exemplar of the genre. So, um, yeah, that's how I really came to it by way of teaching it in that sense. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I have to say, here's been my weird experience this week. So this movie is almost 70 years old. It's 68 years old. And it's really strange to watch a movie like this, which is also a movie everybody's seen this movie. I mean, lots of people have seen this movie. Um, but to, to watch it for the first time and be excited about it and realize I really can't walk up to somebody and say, you know, what's great is singing in the rain. Cause they're going to be, their response is going to be, yep, it sure is. Like, it's sort of like when I read the Harry Potter books, when my kids were reading them. So like, I didn't read them when they came out and it was weird in 2015 to walk around and say, you know, what are some really fun books or Harry Potter books. And people are like, yeah, I could have told you that 20 years ago. So, so that's been a, a very strange experience. So you mentioned that, you know, music, you're not maybe the biggest musical fan. Are, what are the musicals that stand out to you that you do love? Cause I have a list of some where it's like, these are the ones I found myself drawn to. Do you have, do you have a list of those? Well, I like I, I like um, Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, I I like um, Daddy Longlegs. Uh, that doesn't often make the top list, but I, I, that and Top Hat, you know, the other Fred, Fred Astaire films, I like that. Um, probably something like Cabaret, uh, and then maybe among the more recent musicals, um, I like the I like the recent Chicago, um, and then I guess I'd round it out maybe with West Side Story. Okay. Okay. So I, I made a list as well, and we have no overlap in our <laughs> in our list. So so what I look for, what I'll say, what I look for in a musical, and this is why Singing in the Rain hit me so well, is like I tend to not love 
the moments when musicals really slow down when you get like the slow kind of love ballad that that is just not the kind of thing so so i like musicals that tend to have a little bit more um energy and propulsion in them so so i came up with a list of four musicals that are probably my favorite like movie musicals um so Coming into this week before seeing Singing in the Rain, I would have told you the greatest movie musical of all time is Robert Preston's Music Man. Uh, I love yeah. the Music Man. I, I that that's just it's my favorite. It's probably my favorite like of yeah. the old school musicals. Um, uh, I also have uh, The Wizard of Oz. I mean, I I, I love that movie. Um, and that that's a musical that doesn't slow down too much. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a weird one, but I love specifically the first half of the sound of music (laughs) i'm a big proponent that says that that movie should stop at the wedding i didn't know as a kid that it was based on a true story so i remember in college i think i even said this to my wife when we were dating we were talking about movies and i said i wish they wouldn't have tacked on all of that nazi stuff to the end of that movie because it was kind of great and she said well you know it really happened i thought oh okay i guess you have to have that in there then but i love the i love the like the first half of that where it's about this governess who falls in love with with the the um with the father and you know it's like that's a great that's a great story right there good music and then i would say that the last one and there were elements of singing in the rain that remind small elements that remind me this is i'm also a sucker for the james cagney yankee doodle dandy i realize it's it's not perfect but that's a movie i really like Oh, that's that's a good choice, Sam. I'd forgotten about that because I I was an early James Cagney fan, but I, I was James Cagney of the gangster film. So I remember I was really surprised by how talented he was in doing uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. Um, so there's so many directions we can go uh, diving into this. Uh, I'm just going to throw out an, an initial observation, and these are s- sort of things where it's like this is why I found myself drawn to this movie specifically. Um, here's one of the things that I wrote down as I was watching this. Um, this seems to be a movie about dance as much as it's a movie about music. And I really love that. And and when I say dance, it's not sort of the big, there are big production dance numbers, but there's a lot of one or two people dancing, you know, and it's a lot of Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly or, or Donald O'Connor, Gene Kelly and, um, and Debbie Reynolds. And so, so like, so I love the smaller numbers like that because, um, I just found myself deeply, deeply drawn to that. Um, and those were the things that I think I love best. I think this movie had, and this is, this is saying a lot for me, had four numbers that I just, I have watched since I saw the movie, I've gone back onto YouTube and said, I just kind of want to watch that one again. So the fact that there are, if I, when I rewatch this, there's going to be four things that I'm really, really, really excited to see each time I watch it. Um, so, so that was a, that was a pretty big deal for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, see, and that's why I mentioned a couple of Fred Astaire films. I, I think that what Singing in the Rain has done for me, has did for me, is it's drawn me more to musicals that also have the dancing. So uh, Gene Kelly is, and, you know, Kelly and Astaire are the two great dancers. They're very different dancers, but two great dancers. So I would also mention a movie that, on my wife's behalf, which has a lot of dancing, is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, that's another musical that also features uh, dancing as much as does the music. Uh, the other observation that I made coming out of this was why is Donald, o- why was Donald O'Connor not the biggest star in the world? He, he jumps off the screen. It's, it's so in so many places here. Um, and I, I, I hadn't heard of him. I didn't know anything about him. And I watched this and I had two observations. And then I, when I did my Donald O'Connor research, I felt so, um, 
I felt so good because because of the things I learned about these observations. So here, here are the two observations that I had about Donald O'Connor. The first was, man, I wish he had played the Danny K role in White Christmas. I thought he would be good at that. Turns yeah. out he was the first choice for that role. And then he was he was sick. Um so they so they went with Danny K, but that was the initial the initial idea. And I and I thought, man, he would be perfect. And I love Danny K and White Christmas. I think he's great, but I thought he's just he just he reminds me of that and I think would be an even better version. The other thing I thought of, uh, this was especially during the the make him laugh sequence, was I thought I just rem- I was reminded of Buster Keaton. Yeah, yeah. And then did you know that Donald O'Connor played Buster Keaton in a biopic? And I thought, okay, well, that's other people thought these things too. I did not know that actually. That's oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, make make him laugh as you probably know. Put him in the hospital. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, what I don't understand about Donald O'Connor, according to what I read, is I, they they said he was a four pack a day smoker. So I I don't know how he did that stuff physically. No wonder he ended up in the hospital. And he did have heart problems. But, right. Yeah. He also lived a very long life. Yes, he did actually. The heart eventually got him, but I think he was in his eighties by the time he, he finally died. Yeah. Yeah, and was sort of performing, uh, performing the whole way. So I will say, "Make Him Laugh" was the first real, real high point of the of the movie for me. I like, I was already into it, but once we got to that point, I just, um, that's probably my favorite sequence in the movie. And I just, so I, I was just, I just got so excited, and the the combination of physical comedy and then uh o'connor as a dancer i mean famously the the two times he runs up the wall and and flips over and i mean i've seen people do that before i think i've seen clips of this before but but i just i was jaw dropping and i have no idea how many takes that took that may be part of why he ended up in the hospital (laughs) you got to do the thing as a single take Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah and um so, so that just that at that moment, I was I went from oh, I'm enjoying this to uh, I got just my like my uh, physically my body changed and I got really excited by that and I was like okay, now this is what this movie's going to be capable of and I was thinking at the same time this is a movie that is stars Gene Kelly right who the year before I mean Best Picture was uh, an American in Paris stars Gene Kelly's directed by Gene Kelly choreographed by Gene Kelly at least shares part of the credit for that and i thought wow how generous is this that this big show-stopping scene kelly isn't even in he mean he's he's sitting on the sidelines and letting letting the sidekick do this thing which um again i didn't know where the rest of the movie was going but i thought man this seems like the biggest upstaging scene you could have you know um but i thought well that actually speaks to a kind of generosity in this film and a collaborative nature in this film yeah, which which you would hope you would find from a dancer like like Kelly. Um, you know, one of the other ways I love the scene, in some ways, to me, Sam, is it kind of encapsulates uh, everything this film has, which is the singing, the dancing, and the humor. I mean, uh, it, it 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 has a rare the rare ability to achieve all of those. And I would also say the other kind of uh, signature uh, scene for the film, the most famous scene, of course, is Kelly performing "Singing in the Rain," which has singing, dancing, and the love story. And how this film manages to marry, so to speak, both of those elements. The element of, is it a comedy? Yes. Is it a musical? Yes. Is it a love story? Yes. Um, you know, it's, it, it, how, how it managed to make all those things work together. Uh, and I was just saying to my wife about it this morning. I said, you know, when you think about the origins of the film, 
um, you know, Arthur Freed, who directed the MG, famously directed the MGM musical unit, you know, he said, well, we got a bunch of these songs sitting around. You know, the only original song in the film is Moses Supposes. Everything else had already been written or even used. And I mean, that, that sounds like a very unpromising idea for a film. Let's, let's find a way to use a bunch of these songs. Uh, and yet somehow, I don't know how that um, chemistry works, you know, and, uh, it, and it does. It just, uh, from beginning to end, it just works. Yeah, and and what's interesting is how much when I read that story after the fact, how I was sort of blown away that this was just given to uh, Betty Condon and a Adolph Green, and they said just you know just write this, and they they didn't want the job, and they almost turned it in and said we can't do this. Um, and then what's interesting is how much the movie even tells a version of that story where you have the you know the um, the silent film, and it's just like okay, well we have this stuff, let's rework it. And mm -hmm. let's rework it into something else. Let's rework it into a musical. Let's rework it into this this other thing. And you know, so so I thought that was um, that was really interesting. And that's even another picture of sort of the the kind of collaborative nature about this. I notice how many things have multiple people attached: two screenwriters, two directors, multiple choreographers. All these, you know, um, uh, even even Freed, right? He's a he has a songwriting partner, and they wrote most of the music for this um mm -hmm. so so that and and we talk about sort of marrying styles together it's a comedy but it's a it's multiple kinds of comedy i mean you have the make them laugh style comedy but then the whole thing is also both this kind of history of film but a but a satire of it as well i mean i think one of the funniest scenes and it's something where they don't explicitly say this is supposed to be funny is the the fashion show sequence I mean, I, my daughter and I and Anne were watching this and we were laughing hysterically because it's it's so like overdone and so funny. Um, but there's never a moment where it's like, here's the punchline of it. It's like the thing itself is the punchline. But it's also a pretty realistic representation. Yeah. And, and, and Arthur Freed himself was famous for saying, I can't picture it. You know, so so, so you know, you, you see this, this whole production, and we've all we've seen it all. Then you come back, it says, "I I can't picture," and it's just it's just <laughs> a wonderful satirical touch. Um, one of the things that 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 struck me that I also loved about this, um, and this connects this movie to other things we've been talking about, is the way the movie opens. Right there, uh, it's this premiere of this movie, and. Uh, you see the, uh, the the Gene Kelly character being interviewed and he tells his, the story of his rise, right? And it sort of reminded me a little of Yankee Doodle Dandy where it's like, oh, we get to see the backstory of this performer. But then we also see in whether it's Citizen Kane or Rashomon style that it's like, oh, there's the story being told and then we're seeing... <laughs> You know, the voiceover is telling us one version of the story, and what we're seeing is like, well, it's not exactly what he was saying was was not untrue, but not exactly true either. And I loved, I loved that um, that opening as well. Well, it's also not 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 to be too um, um, academic about it, Sam, but it also connects with what I'd see as one of the kind of um, themes of the film that get played out in terms of the the contrast between the reality and the presentation of reality. So in a sense, he is kind of lip syncing his own history in a way that's at variance with the image. And this is a film that's very much concerned about the connection between, um, in some cases, the image and the sound, 
or the or, or the appearance and the, and the reality. So I think it's really significant that the film starts with that kind of notion of, of illusion. Um, here's what you're seeing, or in this case, here's what you're being told, and here's what the reality is. And that and that I think is what the film want is. If if you want to say there's a deeper message or a deeper theme to the film, I think that could be one way to think about it. Uh, which is of course where the film climaxes with um, uh, with the, the the singing at the end, right? Where Lena is actually, of course, you know, being being synced by Kathy. But but the real joke is Kathy, that is Debbie Reynolds, is actually being synced by somebody else. So it's actually oh, not really. It's actually not Debbie Reynolds singing for uh, for uh, Gene Hagen. Oh, is it j just in that scene though, or? Uh, there was two other. There's an, there's another one of the other numbers. Uh, she's also dubbed. Okay, uh, but but Debbie and, Reynolds is singing in her in other parts of the movie, right? Yeah, but there's at least two songs where she's not singing. And, okay, uh, interesting. The, the reason for the dubbing isn't isn't really clear. At least I I wasn't able to get deep enough into my research to find out why. Because Debbie Reynolds has a perfectly fine voice. The 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 other place where there's a bit of a joke going on is in the dialogue in the um. Uh, in in this in the sound film where they say that they're going to have Kathy dub Lena's voice, it's actually Gene Hagen doing her own voice. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, because she had a perfectly acceptable voice. So one of the reasons I think why she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress is that that's not in the in any respects the way she talks. That kind of high squeaky nasal voice. That's not her natural voice at all. So. Anyway. She was a she was another favorite in this movie. I thought I thought that just as a as a, a a purely comedic performance. And you know, it's tough to I think it's tough to be in a big musical like this and actually not have a musical number, not have a dance number, and actually be the character where they're like, "Yeah, we don't want you to be part of the fun." And so instead, she got to be part of the fun where she's other than than Donald O'Connor, probably the funniest thing in the movie is whenever she talks and just her the way she embodies that character. It's it's actually a really great performance. Um, but it, and even though it doesn't get to participate in lots of the other fun of this movie, and she was she was also a second choice. Um, uh, you were talking about Donald O'Connor uh, and and Danny and Danny Kay. She was a second choice. Uh, they originally wanted uh, Billy Holiday, uh, but Billy Holiday had won the Oscar the year before. Uh, and so she was too expensive. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting as you talk about sort of uh, the ideas potentially like embedded in this movie. As I was looking at reviews for this film, I read a, a number of contemporary reviews. Uh, and it's interesting because the overall sense that I got from the, the reviews at the time were very, they were very positive, but positive in a way where it was sort of like, oh, this is this is really fun, but there's not a lot to it. There's not a lot of ideas to it. So I want to just read, I actually really enjoyed the uh, the New York Times uh, Bosley Crowther review. I don't know, did you get a chance to read this one? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, just, I want to read a little bit from him um, because I think it is funny because he he's praising the movie, but also kind of saying, eh, I don't really know what this, I don't know if this is about that much. Um, so he says, uh, take as a token of the picture, its title, Singing in the Rain, which has no more to do with its story than it has to do with performing dogs. <laughs> All of the things, this song and dance contrivance is an impudent offhand comedy about the outlandish making of movies back in the chic and flapper days when, they're, when they were bridging the perilous chasm of silent to talk films. And its plot, if that's what you'd call it, 
concerns a silent film star who's linked with a uh, slut-voiced leading lady while wooing a thrushy new young thing. If anyone can tell us what all this nonsense that goes goes on has to do with the title of the picture, we'll buy him a new spring hat. But that doesn't make any difference, for the nonsense is generally good, and at times it reaches the level of a first-class satiric burlesque. So he's sort of saying, like, well, this stuff goes on, but it's, I mean, he's, he's kind of saying it's not really about that much. And what's interesting is then in 1999, you read Roger Ebert, and he's saying, actually, what makes Singing in the Rain great is that it is about something, mm-hmm. and it's not just let's put on a, another big musical number. So I found that really interesting. And is, is that because in 1952, they're maybe too close to see it or I mean, why, why are they not, why are those reads so different? Do you think? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point, Sam. And, and this is actually something that occurred to me um, right after I watched the film. Uh, and I thought about the fact that the film opens with the MGM lion and, uh, the MGM motto, right? Um, Ars gratis artis, which means art for art's sake. And that made me think of Oscar Wilde. Um, Wilde famously says in the picture of Dorian Gray, all art is quite useless. Um, and then um, he was asked to explain that. And uh, in a letter, uh, Wilde went on to say that art is useless because its aim is simply to create a mood. It is not meant to instruct or influence action in any way. A work of art is useless as a flower is useless. A flower blossoms for its own joy. Um, so it's interesting because that's the way I originally was thinking about the film. Uh, cause I was thinking about, you know, we live in a moment where we face a lot of really pressing social issues and it seems really self-indulgent to watch a film that really has no function other than to make you laugh. So that, that's one way I was thinking about the film. But then like you, I revisited the Roger Ebert quote uh, Roger, and I thought, yeah, um, it is about something and whether you think movies reflecting on movies is actually a significant thing to think about. That is what the film is about. And you can then engage that at a deeper philosophical level, which I alluded to earlier. Um, the, the notion that the film is really raising an issue that any film raises, which is what's the relationship, in, in, as I said earlier, it's, it's the relationship of voice and image. But you can also say that it's about um, what's the, uh, the nature of, of truth. Um, the, the truth is a unity of, of how things are, appear and how things are versus um, falsehood, separation. So I don't think, though, if I'm Bosley Crowther doing this film in 1952, I'm probably not inclined to get particularly philosophical about it. And I'm probably not inclined to see um, the meditation on the transition from talkies, from, from silence to talkies, as maybe um, a particularly important thing to investigate i'm, I'm not sure mm-hmm. uh a few other things i just want to i want to go through just some of the other so i said there were four numbers that i loved in this uh mm-hmm. in this film uh another one is uh, obviously the the good morning sequence um yeah. which is again i mean I, I the word i would use as i keep thinking about this is like this film delights me like i just feel good i feel good even thinking about these these sequences and, and there, there's just sort of a pure joy. And I will say um, in all of the scenes that, that uh, uh, in all in the four sort of musical numbers that I really loved, part of what I loved is because none of them are big production numbers where they all of a sudden have, you know, a hundred dancers doing this big choreography, but it's, you know, make them laugh is one person. Uh, Good morning is two people. Moses supposes is, 
two kind of three people and singing in the rain is one person is that they take the time because it's one person or two people or three people you can the camera can get in close enough and looking at gene kelly's face as he dances looking at debbie reynolds faces she dances looking at donald o'counter's face as he dances and they're doing these like big crazy you know things you know but just an individual up there dancing like that is the source of like i feel like i could see into the joy that they were putting into even though i'm sure these were incredibly hard i know gene kelly had 103 degree fever during the singing in the rain sequence he's probably sick as a dog but I know enough about performing to know like there's a kind of joy in the fact that you're creating this thing that other people are going to find joy in, even if you're miserable in the moment that you're doing it. And like that radiates off the screen in those four numbers to me. And it's just like, I, I get excited when I can pull those scenes up and watch them again. Well, it's interesting you say that about sheer joy, because one of, one of the reviews I was reading pointed out the, um, the look of, determination on Debbie Reynolds' face during Good Morning because she, as you probably know, she was not a hoofer. Um, she had to learn for this for this movie. And uh, Gene Kelly was not especially kind to her. In fact, he reduced her to tears at one point. And it was Donald Connor that kind of took her, took her apart. And she she ended up, her feet were bleeding at the end of some of these some of these scenes. So I find it really remarkable because I, I, I noticed her performance in particular and how well she was keeping up with the, with, with the guys. Um, so I, I think that she's and she was only 18 at the time they were they they made the film so it's pretty remarkable um so i want to i want to pivot to the the one part of the movie that i didn't love uh and what's interesting is even in ebert's review who this is one of his great movies four stars he said and it's it's not that it's a bad scene it just takes me out of the sort of nature the the this movie just keeps moving forward and i love it and then we get to the broadway melody really long sequence um which is gorgeous to look at like visually it's I, I would love to see this movie have you ever seen it on like a in a movie theater well it, it was a pretty big screen when i saw it in college yeah okay because i, I that, that was my other takeaway so i got my i got my projector out and we watched it on like a 10 foot mm -hmm. screen that we were pretty close to which was cool but I'm thinking, man, I would love to see this even on yeah. a bigger on a bigger screen and i think the the broadway melody sequence um would be even more impressive that way. It's gorgeous to look at, but it feels like if you lift it, and this is what Ebert says, if you just lifted that out, it probably wouldn't change the movie at all, except this is also a big Gene Kelly moment, you know, to kind of, this is, this is one of his big showcases along with the singing in the rain scene. Well, it, you know, it's pretty brilliant how they find an excuse to insert it. Right. I mean, so in that sense it works, but, and I, and I do like part of it, um, I, I, I do like the, the gotta dance part because what he does obviously is he kind of retells, right? He retells the story he told at the beginning and he, and he also kind of looks at this whole culture thing like theater versus film because he goes from burlesque to vaudeville to the Ziegfeld Follies. So it's yet another one of those moments where the film was reflecting on its own genre. Uh, to me, the, the, where it gets really leaden and where I really wish they would cut ironically enough because i love sid sharice's dancing but i just think the thing with him and sid sharice that's mm -hmm. that's to me that's if, if if the film wouldn't suffer without that i i i love the energy of uh oh gotta dance but i just think it, the thing kind of stops and that's what ebert sort of says it's a little mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's the one sort of, I don't know if we want to call it a misstep, but it's the one place where it feels maybe self-indulgence the right thing. Because, you know, because Kelly, Kelly derived his dance style from a, from a lot of different, uh, he was very eclectic in his approach to dance. And so I think in a sense, what he kind of wanted to show off, which he does quite successfully, is the range of dancing. I mean, think about the film that contains both the singing in the rain dance and the dance with Sid Charisse. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. how do you get those two styles in the same film? That's pretty remarkable stuff. So I appreciate I appreciate it more than I like it. I'm I'm not unhappy when it comes to an end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, it definitely I, I had this sense, especially like you said during the Sid, Sid Sharice part, which again is gorgeous to look at. Like whatever's happening, I we I kept looking at it, thinking, what are they doing to get that train up in the air? Is the, I yeah. mean. Cause it looks like it's just blowing. It's like, do they have these fans strategically in the floor or I like, it was, I was mesmerized by what I was looking at, but you like, I needed to be reminded I was watching singing in the rain, yeah. which has, which is just like, we're, you know, it's like we all of a sudden slip into Lockwood's head for a while and we sort of see what he's thinking. And, and it's like, okay, but I want to get back to, to this story. Um, it's also interesting. I was reading about scenes that were, either planned or scenes that were filmed and cut for this movie. And I, I know Anne has seen a couple of the, the scenes that were cut. They, they, some of them exist. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, just reading about them, I feel like every cut was a good one. Like yeah. it, it, it feels like it's, you know, Oh, we're, would they reprise this song? Or I know Debbie Reynolds miss, or they, they cut out a sort of solo song of hers. Which mm -hmm. answers well. It does give. It does sort of shift the perspective of the movie a little bit, so you get to see that, which which has value. But I feel like the uh, the fact that this movie, with the with the one exception, doesn't really slow down. It makes me love it. So I mean, it makes it more perfect for me, at least the the cuts that they ended up making. And I actually find that's usually the case, um, uh, Sam. When I when I get a DVD and it has deleted scenes. Um, Sometimes I watch them, sometimes I don't, because sometimes if I watch them, I get confused about what was in the film and what, what wasn't. But usually you're right. You, I, I, when I watch most deleted scenes, my response usually is to say that was a, that was a good cut. So what are other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, a couple things. Um, one is I, wa I want to expand a little bit on the film as a musical because um, it actually... Musicals have subgenres, and what's interesting about Singing in the Rain is it actually contains several subgenres of musicals. So, for example, the the self-referential aspect of it being a musical about making a musical, that's that that's a whole genre of you know kind of the the, the backstage musical, uh, like Kiss Me Kate, you know, where you're actually behind the scenes where 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 the the musical is being planned out or the players are talking about it. It's also got elements of um, the, what's called, sometimes called the fairy tale musical. So the musical that creates a kind of a, 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 a dreamlike world or, or a, a world of, of the spectator's dream. And it's also kind of got the, the, the element of what's been called the folk musical, which is kind of a, a mythical view version of the cultural past, which would be that whole transition from silence to talkies. So to me, that's the other genius of this film. It's not just a musical. It's like, it's like they said, let's take all the elements that we've ever seen in any musical and let's put it in here. And somehow the, the darn thing works. Um, the other thing I love about it is I love, I love um, Quaker Oats' works of art. I love works of art that are about works of art or that are about themselves. So if you, if you think about the fact that the film opens with the three principles singing, singing in the rain, 
uh, in a scene that doesn't appear anywhere in the film. And then you, of course, have Gene Kelly performing Singing in the Rain, and then you have Kathy singing Singing in the Rain, and then at the end, the billboard is Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain. So it's, it's like, it, it just creates this, it, it, it both is about the whole Hollywood world of 1927, but it's also just about itself. And so to me, it's the idea that this is both a self-contained work of art, again, art for art's sake, but it's also a work that has all kinds of kind of external references. Um, I can't think of many films that do that as well as this film does. Yeah, I also love, again, as a musical, one of the great scenes in this movie is the microphone scene, which has nothing to do with music, with it being a musical. It's just this separate scene where it's such a funny bit where they're trying to put it in the different places. And I just think that's brilliant. In fact, um, the, those, the microphone scene uh, is based on actual stories. Uh, oh, really? Uh, yeah, of, of actual difficulties that, that they had in the early days of the talkies. Huh. That, you know, that was a problem. They didn't have boom mics. Um, you know, they weren't concealing microphones in the ceiling the way uh, they do in Citizen Kane. You know, so you really that 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 was one of the reasons why the acting in the early talkies was so static because people just it's very stagey, right? People just had to sit there and make sure they talked into the microphone. And, and I, I don't know if it even goes down to RF coming in and trip and pulling up pulling the cord. <laughs> right. <down. laughs> Yeah, no, that's I, I love that. I also there's also we've talked about this in other on other movies. There's some great scenes of people watching movies, you know, when when they're at the debuts and they, they cut away and the, the people laughing at the uh, the dueling cavalier, you know, like like those. I, I love I think I'm a sucker for shots of people watching Watch, a movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, evidently one of the outtakes is uh, Gene Kelly missing the car when he goes to jump into it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would say just the athleticism of both Kelly and O'Connor, too, is pretty amazing. I mean, yeah, that going up the wall and 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 the, the great thing, we, I didn't mention this, but the great thing about how that scene ends, of course, is, you know, he goes up the wall twice, sets up the audience's expectations, right? And then goes goes through the wall. It's just, that is, a, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. <laughs> I, 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 the only other thing I, I will say is when I mentioned earlier on the, uh, the AFI top 10 film list, uh, top 10 musicals that four of those are Arthur Freed musicals. So Singing in the Rain is number one, Wizard of Oz is number three, American in Paris is number nine, and Meet Me in St. Louis is number 10. So 40% of the top 10 are came out of Arthur Freed. Well, what do you have for us next week, Baird? Well, I think since we're talking about the move from talkies, from, from silence to talkies, uh, I think the obvious movie to pair with Singing in the Rain is Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Uh, so we're staying right around 1950 period. So we're back to 1950, same year as Rashomon. But I, to me, that's the other great film from a, in a very different vein about the move from silence to talkies. Uh, Billy, it'll be our second Billy Wilder film, a very different film, obviously from Some Like It Hot. Um, but I just, I just love this film. I'm so excited that you said this because this is yet another movie that I feel like I've been around people watching it but not i know i haven't s sat and watched and i think i knew that singing what the sing what singing in the rain was roughly about and i know what sunset boulevard is roughly about and i think in my head i had sort of mashed the two together because there were parts of singing in the rain where i was like isn't there 
supposed to be this other thing that happens and it's probably happens in sunset boulevard so the fact that within two weeks we can, i can sort of tease these things out and get to watch two two classic films that uh that's that sounds great to me and then sunset boulevard what, what 10 15 years ago it got turned into a broadway musical but i know nothing about that so <laughs> i won't talk about that well barrett i i always thank you for uh for recommending films at the end of the show but uh, this one uh, this is going to be a movie that's just going to be part of my life going forward. This feels like a movie that probably at least once a year I will I will fire up. I need to attach it to a maybe I'll attach it. It'll be like my January movie because January in Minnesota can be kind of bleak and cold and colorless. And there's something that's uh, warm and energetic and fun about this movie. This is actually a great movie to watch in the middle of the day in January when it's a day you don't feel like going outside. So maybe, maybe this will become a new holiday tradition for me. I, I think, I think that's exactly right. To me, it was the right film to kind of uh, watch right about the same time as moving into 2021 and hopeful changes ahead. Um, I put it in the category with a film like uh, uh, Christopher uh, guests are waiting for Guffman. Uh, and if I just want to feel, get, get myself in a good mood, I put a film like that on. Yeah. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Barrett. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about Sunset Boulevard in the video store. Mm -hmm.